Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hi, this is Joe Castellano from thesportsvirus.com. Welcome to the Inside China Basin San Francisco Giants baseball podcast on the Believe Podcast Network, featuring our regular guest, two-time World Series champion, former Giants reliever, George Contos. Gabe Kapler is not Bruce Bochy, so he's going to run things his way. And I'm sure with Farhan, they've had their discussions on what the best course of action is for the ball club. Inside China Basin is brought to you by Keynes Tire in San Rafael, the lowest prices in Marin County for over 60 years. Well, joining us this week, we've got a couple of guests, and uh, it's going to be really fun to talk to Brad Mangin later on. He is a photographer, and we're going to go down memory lane with him. And we might go down a little bit of memory lane as well with our guest right now, Ray Woodson, who uh, is also my co-host on the Dubs OT Warriors podcast, stepping in here, uh, who knows a lot about the Giants because he was the KMBR postgame host and uh, always would talk people off the ledge when the Giants weren't doing well. Well, now the Giants are doing well. So, Ray, you can imagine that the callers are probably overly optimistic about the way the Giants are playing, right? Yeah, it's come full circle. I mean, I would imagine the optimism around the Bay Area has, has not been at this level for a good six or seven years. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this season develops with a team that I don't think uh, a lot of people expected to be where they are now. Uh, there have been some surprises, not only uh, some contributing players who are under the radar, but you know the veterans coming back and making huge contributions like Brandon Crawford and Buster Posey. Uh, so a little bit of a flashback, but also a little bit of a bridge to the future. It's uh, it's an interesting time. I, you know, I've, I've felt all along like uh, everything is pointing toward the 2022 season, but that doesn't mean that uh, you don't try to win this year, and maybe you've arrived at the station a little early, and that's reminiscent of the 2014-2015 Warriors. I think uh, Steve Kerr's mentioned this before, that he didn't think that team was going to be the one to win the championship. He thought the next year was when they were ready. He thought, you know, maybe they weren't quite ready for prime time, and they, they took the championship in 15, and then, of course, lost it uh, at, with a whole lot of drama in 16 when they had a, a record-setting year. I, I think this there's a bit of a parallel there in that uh, the, the, the young players that they brought up are, are contributing, but also the veterans are making, uh, as I said, a lot of noise. I don't know how sustainable it is, but so far it's been better than expected. Oh, yeah. I mean, I would have to say I'm pretty shocked at the way things have gone the first two months of the season, having the best record in the National League. I just didn't see that coming, Ray. When, when I looked at it on paper coming in, I mean, I thought, okay, the lineup was a little bit better last year. I'm not sure about the rotation, and the rotation has stepped up big time. I mean, especially Kevin Gosman. You knew that he had the stuff, but, I mean, every time out, he's lights out. And the other guys that are that are in those slots in the rotation, sure, there, there have been a, a couple of bumps in the road there for Johnny Cueto and even – Di Sclafani, but overall, everybody's done a great job. You know, Alex Wood as well. Uh, he's mm-hmm. had a couple bumps in the road, but uh, th- those pitchers that I don't think got a lot of notoriety while well, everybody was talking about the Dodgers and the Padres, those pitchers have stepped up. Yeah, you toss in Logan Webb and Aaron Sanchez, and they've got some depth there. And, you know, Gosman, this is a, this is a kind of story that does happen with pitchers in baseball to where they're they're scrapping around a little bit for a few years. Maybe they're not in the right situation. 
Maybe they're not with the right team, but you see the stuff and you see the potential there. And certainly Farhan Zaidi is good at seeing that in players. And they got him over to San Francisco last year. And it's the combination, I think, of being coached up, being in a good ballpark to pitch, and having a, a, a real good defense behind him. Last I checked, the Giants had the fewest errors in Major League Baseball. And you throw all that together, and he's not only gotten better results, but that feeds into his confidence. And that becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy for him. And he's pitcher of the month for May. And that's in a, in a league with Jacob deGrom, who's having a historic year. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, Gausman is one of the big stories uh, with that pitching rotation, as is Wood, as is DiSclefani. Uh, you know, the bullpen's been a little dodgy, but uh, the, the starting pitching has been so good, they find themselves in games late, and they're pulling out some of those games. And, uh, you know, I looked at the schedule at the start of the year, and I thought to myself, all right, uh, they might be able to get off to a good start. If they're going to have any chance this year, they've got to get off to a good start because it was uh, a little bit easier, and then you got into the part of the schedule where you're playing the Dodgers seven times, and, you know, they, they got a little slap in the face at uh, Oracle Park when they got swept by the Dodgers, but they come right back and take three or four of in L.A., and I think that got everybody's attention. Oh, absolutely. It definitely did. I mean, that was a big turning point so far. You know, the, the bullpen, I don't know that I have as much confidence as you or even George Contos. He he brought up a lot of positives about the Giants' bullpen. I am scared of this bullpen, Ray, because I just <laughs> – I mean, I don't see anybody that's really consistent other than Zach Littell, who's been great, and Barriger, who went on the injured list. But, you know, as far as closing out games – I know Rodgers has really good numbers, but I feel like the hitters are going to figure him out at some point because he doesn't throw that hard. And with McGee, McGee throws hard enough, but he's really featuring just the fastball, and it seems like that can get timed out at some point. Well, and the other part of it is you can always, if you're in contention, you can always acquire an arm for the bullpen, right? So that's a a move teams can make. That's the position you want to be in where, uh, you know, maybe you have a little weakness in the bullpen. You can make a deal for a guy and bolster that bullpen. But right now, you know, anybody looking for a parallel to the 2010 Giants, for example, it's not in the bullpen because, you know, what was a constant of those championship teams, aside from, you know, Buster Posey and Madison Bumgarner, it was the bullpen. It was the core four uh, that provided Bruce Bochy, who was great at dealing with bullpens, as we know, but it gave him a, a, a you know, full toolbox of versatility and, and guys you could use in different situations, especially AFL. You know, yeah, and as far as the Rodgers are concerned, well, you had Romo coming out of the pen in the 2012 championship season, and he getting the final out in Detroit, and he didn't have overwhelming stuff either, but he had a couple of specialty pitches that were pretty good, and that slider was was lights out against right-handed batters. Oh, yeah. You know, Rodgers, of course, he comes in with a funky arm angle, but he's not going to blow anybody away. He's going to get you off balance. Uh, not the classic closer, but it can work for a while. I do think that uh, if you're Farhan Zaidi, if you're Scott Harris, if you're Gabe Kapler, you've always got an eye out for another arm and a power arm, especially, that uh, you could acquire. And if things keep going well for the Giants, I would not be surprised if they do that, and probably sooner rather than later because it's a, it's a different type of trade deadline this year. You know what maybe surprises me the most, Ray, about the last couple of seasons under Gabe Kapler is that I didn't think 
that the veteran players would buy into some of the things they're doing, especially the the hockey line change. I mean, uh, that takes uh, yeah. uh, a lot <laughs> to get players to buy into that because you're not going to play an entire game. You know, hey, I'm in the start, starting lineup. Shouldn't he be, I be playing the whole game? That's not happening. And you've got veteran hitters that have been taking to these hitting coaches, and they've got so many coaches. None of them have major league experience. But this is working right now. These guys, I mean, you look at Crawford, Belt, Posey. We, we've been talking about them the whole season that they, they're coming through and they've changed some things. You see Posey has a little bit of a different stance. Same thing with Crawford, a little more open in his stance. So obviously the coaching is working and the players are buying into the hockey line change. I mean, I, I don't know how that all happened. I was pretty surprised that it would. Well, I used to joke last year that, uh, you know, Kepler is probably glad there's not a roster limit on coaches because uh, he's, <laughs> he's maxing out on uh, like one for every player. But it appears to be having a good effect. And, you know, what the store of knowledge they have, the players have to buy in. It looks like they are. Because you always do buy in when you get results. And I think it's evident in the approach of, in general, of Giants hitters. Over the last couple of years, we've seen the difference. This was a team that was not very good at being selective, didn't have a high on-base percentage, wasn't working the count as, as well as a lot of teams in Major League Baseball. And you've seen that change to where now uh, it's a bit more of a grind for a starting pitcher to get through five or six innings against this lineup. They are working the count. They are a little more selective. I mean, you know, there's still strikeouts like there are <laughs> everywhere in Major League Baseball. But, like, overall, we've seen the improvement, especially last year. And you look at a guy like Yastrzemski, who's, you know, improved by leaps and bounds as far as his, his patience at the plate. So uh, that that has to be a factor of coaching to some degree as well as players maturing, I think that, that figures into it as well, as well as you know the front office identifying players uh, that maybe had been undervalued elsewhere. And you know it's one of the very first things I talked to Farhan Zaidi about when he was introduced the very first day in November of 2018, is identifying those kinds of players like he did on the Dodgers, you know, a la Max Muncie and Chris Taylor, uh, guys who you know, weren't hot prospects. They were in their late 20s. But, you know, they, they hit their stride. Uh, you see that a lot with pitchers maturing in their late 20s and early 30s. With position players, you're looking for somebody to show what they are by the age of 25, but that's not always the case. And I think Yastrzemski is a perfect example of that. And so now these guys, Alex Dickerson, Mike Talkman, who made the great catch on that Friday night in L.A. that might end up being a turning point in the season. You know, they, they, these guys, Stephen Duggar, I'll throw another one in that apparently has, has really benefited from coaching. So you, know, you, you put all that together, and you put together the uh, Farhan Zaidi philosophy of finding incremental advantages up and down this roster. And I think that, that plays into what you were talking about with the hockey line change. Uh, you feel like you have depth, and there's not going to be a big drop-off when you go to a bench player, which, I, which was a huge problem for the Giants for a few years, and one of the reasons uh, they were really scuffling. I mean, you, know, you, you had some bit players coming in that uh, you know you're not going to find on this roster that's one of the things they've done they've built it up the 40-man roster uh, also players one through 26 and in the organization in general and so pretty soon we're going to see some of the top prospects coming up but in the meantime you know they've got some competent major league players and i think it's it's also very important that they have that depth because you know you mentioned posey or crawford or belts 
you know, these guys are in their Longoria. They're they're in their mid to late thirties. So over a long season, you better have that depth. And I think the way they're handling Posey, for example, is an example. You know, and I and I think again, the veteran players, they they see that they're well rested and they're getting results by maybe only playing six innings or maybe resting a little more often than in the past. They do it, and they do it with confidence, A, knowing that they're getting results on the other side, and B, that the person who's coming in is is going to make the team still competitive. I'm glad you brought that up, especially about Posey, because I was thinking about when Bruce Bochy was the manager, one of his great strengths was the way that he would handle the bullpen, he wouldn't burn them out, and you wondered about Kapler if he was going to burn out the bullpen, and I think he's gotten better this year at letting his starters go a little bit longer, and maybe they've proven that they yeah. can do that. But also, this whole situation, with, especially with Posey and his playing time, is very interesting because I keep thinking that they're going to miss out on having his bat in there because he got off to such a good start and they're not playing him at first base at all. And I thought, man, they should really get him in the lineup every once in a while at first base, especially in a series against the Dodgers instead of having him sit out. But, I mean, Posey hasn't complained about it. It is working the way it is. Other guys that are playing over at first base have done you know, a pretty good job. If Belt is hurt, all of a sudden you plug in a guy like Lamont Wade and, and he's hitting pretty well. Uh, and Flores yeah. is starting to swing it better. So maybe I'm wrong about trying to play Posey at first because right now it seems like they are dead set against having Posey play any first base. If I had a dollar for every phone call I took on the post game show about Posey playing first base over the years, uh, my four hundred one k would be fat and happy. But you know, it, it, it just a constant, constant, uh, uh, you know, uh, theme among fans and the media about Buster Posey. And you know, for the last time, the dude wants to catch, and the dude is good at it, and he provides the greatest value for the team at that position. Yeah, once in a while, I guess he could play first base, and he's been very productive there. But the advantage he provides them at first base is not what it is when he's catching, especially when he's hitting like he is this year, uh, thanks, I think, in part to the rest. Plus, when you put Posey at first base, uh, you're weakening yourself defensively at two positions maybe. Not that Posey's a bad first baseman, but Brandon Bell is quite capable down there. And uh, you know, then you lose Posey behind the plate, where he is so valuable. He continues to be, and he's showing this year that he hasn't missed a step in that regard. So, and I think Posey is realistic enough to know at this point that you know he's if if you don't want to go the Joe Mauer route, where by the time you get to the 30s you have a huge drop off, it's probably the way to do it. So at the end of the year, you know the the counting stats may not be as spectacular as far as home runs and RBI. But, uh, you know, the inside stats that, you know, the analytics people look at, it's going to be better for him, I think, to play at the, the pace that he's playing and not go into a lot of games where you're tired, and then it's a lot of diminishing returns. Also helps that you have a, a really good defensive receiver, Casale, and the, the Giants have a real good record when Casale's been catching in games, although he got hurt. Uh, and, and I know Joey Bart's uh, on the doorstep once again, and Casale doesn't hit very much. Uh, you know, I don't know over the course of a long season how that works out, but right now that that arrangement has worked out pretty well. It's funny too. I mean, this team is so different than previous teams where you know it'd be a low scoring game. You always counted on the the pitching. You had Lincecum, Kane, and those guys, and great bullpen and all that. Now you got home runs all over the place. I mean, this team yeah. last time I checked, they were second in the major leagues in homers, which you'd never 
ever even consider that playing at Oracle Park. But this team has a different philosophy about it. I mean, you've got guys hitting home runs that, you know, weren't hitting as many. I mean, Posey, he's, he's having a, a career year as far as hitting home runs right now. It's kind of the way the whole game is, though, Ray. We were talking about it a little bit before the podcast, how in Major League Baseball, it's all about the home run. I mean, there aren't that many guys hitting singles anymore. Yeah, well, a couple of years ago, it, it was a record-setting year, right? It was just going crazy. Then apparently they've changed the, the characteristics of the baseball, and uh, you know maybe not flying out as much as it did, but given the approaches of hitters, it's about home runs or strikeouts, and there's a lot less action in the game, which I think is going to be a problem uh, going forward. And I think I know people in Major League Baseball's front office are looking hard at that because, I mean, you've got great stuff from one to 13 in every bullpen, you know, you know, you have a few exceptions of quirky pitchers like Rogers, but I think overall, these guys are throwing up their nineties. They're throwing sliders at 90. Uh, they, you know, split fastballs. They've got just heinously good stuff and it's, it's tougher and tougher for hitters and you throw in the shifts and you know, the, what the science behind defenses and pitching, it's just harder and harder to, to compile a good batting average. But, you know, the, the good thing for hitters now is that we're paying less attention to the batting average and more to the other peripheral stats. As, you know, analytics go a deeper dive into the value of a player and things like weighted runs created plus. So uh, it's just a different kind of a game like that. But, you know, we're still seeing a lot of home runs. And the Giants being a, a top two or three, it's reminiscent of the 60s which was a pitcher's era, but the Giants had Mays and McCovey and Cepeda and Jim Ray Hart and Bobby Bonds, and they were always near the top. You didn't expect to see that uh, with this group. You, you, know, you did expect to see it when Barry Bonds was playing, and they hit 235 home runs one season while playing at that ballpark. But uh, the, the difference this year is they're getting a lot more home runs on the road. Uh, they're, they're still playing a lot like the Giants teams of the past at home, and using that advantage, they're getting a, a, a little easier break because they've reconfigured the park a little bit, but not to the point that it's hurting pitchers. So, uh, yeah, this this team's going to be about home runs. Uh, you know, their, their OPS plus is one of the better ones in baseball, and they've got starting pitching, and they've got defense, and that's not a bad combination. Let me ask you this, Ray, and I, I talked about this a couple of weeks ago with John Shea from the San Francisco Chronicle. I mean, you talk about the game not having as much action, like you said, and it's a serious concern. And we hear somebody like Don Manningly saying that it's unwatchable at times. <laughs> and I'm not sure what the solution is because, I, you know, I think the shift definitely has contributed to where we are right now. But I'm not sure that if you eliminate the shift that it automatically solves the problems because of what you were talking about with everybody coming in, throwing 95 to 100 miles an hour. I mean, it changes the approach of the hitters where, you know, basically if they're taking an uppercut swing, you know, trying to get the launch angle and you've got a ball coming in that fast, it's basically either going to be a swing and a miss, a foul ball or a home run because I just think, you know, that seems to be the result we're getting or a walk. Uh, so I don't know how you change that. I don't know that you can do so many things to change it or if just the way it's going to be for a little while. Well, it's indicative of the approach of the hitters and the approach of the pitchers, but you're seeing a lot more strikeouts. And the single is, is going the way of the dodo bird. I mean, the, the, the single is going to have to go to a singles bar to find a mate. Because <laughs> there's, this, 
Vegas, fewer and fewer of them. It's really odd. But I think that's, that is a, a function of the shift, and the approach of hitters is, okay, I'm going to beat the shift by hitting it over everybody's head. I'm going to hit it into the bleachers. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, it's a lot of bravado in there. And, you know, you speak of John Shea, and I just got his book 24 about Willie Mays. And one of the things what Mays said in the book, talking about defensive shifts, is, oh, that wouldn't bother me. I'd, I'd bunt four times until they shift back, right? And, and, and once in a while, I'll see Brandon Belt do that, and I'll get up and applaud. It's like, you know, you don't have to, you know, it's almost like they're baiting you. You don't have to uh, let your bravado and your ego take over and think you could still beat the shift because that's clearly not been the case the last couple of years. And they talk about outlawing the shift, and it's like, oh, I, you know, what, what are you going to do? I mean, are you going to put it a boundary line and the player can't go over it? That's not natural. You know, the only boundary lines you have are the foul lines in baseball. So I think that uh, it's just a matter of hitters and not only being coached to readjust, but, you know, getting the mindset themselves that, hey, you know, they're, they're, if I could bunt a few times, there are hits available for me, and, and I'll beat the shift that way and I'll get them to readjust. But you're not seeing that. And I, I, I don't know. I, I'd like to hear more from players and coaches as to why that is not the case. Yeah, I don't know, but I mean, you're right. They're going to have to make an adjustment. Uh, hitters are, or else we're going to have the lowest batting average ever. Uh, and you know, already we're looking at we could yeah fewer hits than strikeouts. So it's kind of the way it is right now. <laughs> That's uh, bizarre. That yeah. is truly bizarre. <laughs> and you know, I, I grew up in the '60s, and I, I saw a lot of Dodger and Giant games, and you know, it, it was '68 was, was the, the the year of the pitcher, and it was dull. You know, games were fast. But it was always two to one. And, you know, a guy who had 20 home runs in the season, that was a monster year. Well, guess what happened also during that time? Professional football took over as the national pastime over baseball. And they had to make some changes, including lowering the mound. And, you know, that was, that was touch and go. There were still some good pitchers years in the 70s. But I think what you're, you're seeing now is a bit of a reaction to the record home run totals from a couple of years ago. Uh, and so... They're still getting some home runs, not as many, but the other parts of the game are declining to the point, like we said, that there's just not a lot of action, and that's not really what the game was meant to be, I don't think. No, I don't think so either. Ray, thanks a lot for the time. I really appreciate it. I hope to catch up with you again later on this summer, and we'll see if the Giants can keep it going. Well, hopefully uh, by the next time I talk, they, they still are. That's Ray Woodson. Coming up, we'll talk to photographer Brad Manjin when Inside China Basin continues right after this. When it's time for new tires, you want the lowest prices and the best service, don't you? Well, Kane's Tire in San Rafael has you covered on both. Kane's has the lowest prices in Marin County, and they provide the warm and welcoming service that you can only receive from a family-run business. Voted Best of Marin for 35 years in a row, Kane's prices beat Costco's prices every time. Kane's Tire, 1531 4th Street in San Rafael. Give him a call at 415 453 That's 415-453-2942 for Kane's Tire. All right, joining us now is a sports photographer. He's been doing it for a very long time. Brad Mangin, you've seen his work all over the place, Sports Illustrated, uh, and the Brian Murphy books about the 
World Series, Giants teams, and a Giants fan going way, way back. Brad joining us here on Inside China Basin. Brad, thanks a lot for coming on. We're going to reminisce a little bit about some Giants games from the past. Uh, I I guess you're up for that because even though the Giants right now are really a great team, uh, it's always fun to think about those teams from the past. Well, Joe, thanks for having me on. And, yeah, I can uh, I could talk old school 70s uh, bad Giants baseball for for as long as you want. <laughs> well, this all came about because our good friend Steve Croner uh, wrote a little something about Mike Ivey uh, when the anniversary of the great pinch hit Grand Slam occurred. Uh, it was back in May the 28th, 1978, when Ivey hit a Grand Slam against the Dodgers. Big game back that, uh, that year. And, of course, you know, the Giants are – uh, just finished with playing the Dodgers recently here. So you think about the rivalry, and that was one of the great moments in Giants history. Tell us about how you were at that game back in 1978. You can lay claim that that you saw that incredible moment uh, with, a, I think it was a full house at Candlestick Park. Yeah, there were 56,000 fans there. It was Jacket Day. It was Italian-American Day. It was a Sunday afternoon, 105. First pitch, Mom. My Uncle Pete, uh, who lived in, in Redwood City with my cousins and my Aunt Maria, they they had season tickets, and me and my dad got the tickets and took my cousins Mike and Pam to the game, and they were great seats, lower box behind first base, and it was, you know, the Giants, you know, that was the year they, you know, they traded for Vita and during spring training, which was, you know, just nuts, and you know, that was the, the seven-for-one trade, and for the longest time, that was always a a great kind of drunken barroom uh, trivia question I used to have with guys like Matt Mayoko all the time. Okay, can you name all seven, you know, that <laughs> were traded for Vida? Um, and, you know, Vida, you know, would lead the cheers, called the Giants the Little Orange Skateboard, and they got up to this good start, and here come the Dodgers, and it was like the first time the Giants, who were in first place at the time, could kind of prove that they were worthwhile and you know it sounds funny to people now that a may grand slam could mean that much to people our age but there's something about mike ivy and it was against the dodgers of a don sutton it was you know the the chevy payoff inning a woman who you found out later from livermore won a chevy chevette and the big thing to me was it was a lon simmons incredible radio call on KSFO that just punctuated the whole thing and it just it just became this this thing this mythical thing that again there's just really bad video there's the home run call on radio and and it's something that people like us will never ever forget let's go back to May 28 1978 and the call by Lon Simmons That was the call, Lon Simmons. Now, I'll tell you, Brad, why it's so special to me. One of my best friends in life, uh, you know, still a big Giants fan, Stuart Barden, he recorded that Grand Slam, and we would play it over and over and over again. So we know pretty much every word that Lon spoke before the Grand Slam. You know, we know that Don Sutton was pitching. We know it was a 2-0 pitch. We we know well, he, that. We, he, we know I, mean, that. I, I, I haven't heard it in a while, but I could still – Hear him. He runs down where each 
base runner is. Yes. And then he says, and Ivy the batter. <laughs> and he, he also says that Ivy has to guard against being an anxious hitter. And somewhere in there he threw in that Dorothy Cervantes of Livermore, and I wish I could find her, but Dorothy Cervantes would win a new Chevy Chevette if a Grand Slam was hit. And, of course, it was hit. So she won the Chevy Chevette Grand Slam against the Dodgers. You can't beat any of that. I don't know how much of that you were aware of being in the ballpark, though. Well, not, not that. I found out later. The thing is, then, it put the Giants ahead, but then Reggie Smith homered, and the Dodgers came back, but the Giants ended up winning. I remember Terry Whitfield went 4-for-4 four four that day. That was, that was another There's uh, a name, yeah, Terry Whitfield. Note. And, of course, Montefusco started the game, and a couple of years ago, Mario Aliotto from the Giants brought the count back to the ballpark when they were bringing back uh, former players to throw out the first pitch, and I was on the field before the game. It was like a Sunday and it's funny, they bring back these guys, and the current players have no idea who, who the count is. <laughs> John, and, the Count Montefusco. And there's the yeah. Count in the dugout by himself wearing a, wearing a Montefusco jersey. <laughs> and I felt bad. I went up to him, started talking to him. Of course, you know, it was almost embarrassing because, you know, I'm telling him, you know, about his career and things I remember in his first game. And, and I brought up the Ivy game, and he went bananas. And just <laughs> he recounted the whole thing and Sutton and beating the Dodgers and – Oh my God! It was so cool talking. I mean, you know, talking to the guy that started that game. <laughs> well, another parallel for me was that I spent five years working with Joe Altabelli in Rochester as broadcast oh, partners, wow. and you know, the late Joe Altabelli just passed away recently. Right, and we would talk about that team a lot because that team was in first place, didn't uh, end up winning the division, but you know, he he vividly remembered that Ivy Grand Slam and and talked a lot about the players on that team, including you mentioned Johnny Lamaster, who came out one game wearing boost on the back of his jersey you might remember exactly oh yeah yeah it was it was um you know it was it was it was quite a team and they had, they had great pitching staff and you know they they held it together until that that early august uh weekend series against the dodgers at candlestick and and um and bob welch just shut them down on a saturday game of the week and then they lost again on sunday and that was kind of the beginning of the slow end of the season um but it was a it was an incredible year. It was the first really great winning year of my childhood, and and I still remember when they they drew their millionth fan against the Cardinals in July, and it was like a huge deal. They drew a million fans. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was always a real treat to go to a Giants Dodgers game because that's when you'd get a sellout. I mean, the rest of the time, I mean, during the season, you're going to get maybe eighteen thousand rabid fans. I might add, rabid fans, uh, but. When you go to the home opener, I mean, that was also a real treat because you'd have, you know, a capacity crowd. And and another memory I have, one of my favorite moments, was John Tamargo hitting a home run. Uh, it was a pinch hit home run to win a game on opening day, home opener, for the Giants against the Padres. And, and you were telling me about that one, that you were there for that. I was. I uh, uh, My dad took me to that one. That was the 79 home opener. It was you know, first week of April, it was during Easter vacation, and I'll never forget that. We were upper reserve, Section 10, third base side, and, you know, the score was tied at two. It was, it was, um, it was a, you know, it was a great game, and the Giants had opened the season on the road, and, and my, my dad, classic old school guy, hated traffic. You know, we all know how getting out of Candlestick was bad, and mm-hmm. he's like, hey, man, the end of nine, we're, we're leaving. And here it came down to two outs, bottom of the ninth. McCovey hit for Lamaster, got a hit. 
And then here comes John Tamargo, number 30, out of the dugout to hit for Vida. And he hit this great home run to right field. And it was that was just another one of those just kind of cult moments. I mean, John Tamargo was my guy. I mean, I... <laughs> You know, I have a couple of game-used John Tamargo bats in my collection. I mean, he he became this figure, and then he we lost him the following year to the Expos, which killed me. I mean, actually later in the year. Um, but he he that home run. You ask again anybody the Tamargo home run, and that's a Lindsey Nelson call because <laughs> that was the first year the Giants moved from KSFO to, to KMBR, and Lindsey became the voice of the Giants and. It was an incredible moment um, that, you know, again, people our age will never forget. <laughs> well, you know who else was one of our heroes who was not a, a big-name guy was Max Venable. Remember him? We, we used to root for him a lot. He might have hit some big home run, and that turned us on to Max. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, there was always different guys. I mean, from the real old days, I mean, like, you know, Chris Arnold was a guy from, from great pinch hits more than the – in the early 70s. I was always a huge Montefusco guy from when he came up. You know, Halicki's no-hitter. I still remember listening to the whole thing on the transistor radio on that Sunday afternoon in August of 75, second game of double-hitter against the Mets, especially because it was a great Al Michaels call on KSFO, just incredible Al Michaels call. And, you know, there's certain – I mean, I, I remember more about games – in the seventies than, you know, <laughs> I, that I do about games last week and, and numbers and, you know, lineups and, you know, just, you know, McCovey coming back in 77 and that, that, that night game in Cincinnati when he hit two home runs in the same inning, including one of them, a grand slam. And, you know, you just remember these, these games and these moments because they were so incredible and only 20 games a year on TV. So it was so much radio and it just was engraved into your, brain what happened <laughs> well my favorite player was jack clark uh well yeah i yeah, mean he yeah. just had incredible power and uh the, you know first time i saw him hit i think he hit a home run and that was it i was just i love jack clark oh he was unbelievable he i mean he he hit the ball so hard i i mean he was he was unbelievable and <laughs> and it's um it was something else so you you know you forget i you go back and watch youtube I mean, I've I've sent some YouTube videos to Brian Murphy. Like, look at Jack Clark just hitting ropes at Dodger Stadium. I mean, <laughs> he hit the ball so hard and just took his hacks up there. And you know, every once in a while, he'd forget how many outs there were out in right field. And you know, it's just part of part of part of having Jack Clark on your team. But um, man, he was he was something else. He was a uh, you know he he was he was just so great on that team um but you know it was always you know ivy was one of those guys you know mike sadek who we just lost who just passed away recently was a real favorite um i was a big gary lavelle guy um i love watching lavelle pitch yeah um, the lefty yeah you know there's just there's there's always you know different guys that um you know and just and 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 it becomes, you know, do you remember Skip James? Do you remember this guy? Do you remember that guy? There were so many guys that was always going to be the next big thing, <laughs> you know, you know, the, the, you know horse speed. I mean, there was always going to be somebody, and very few of them ever panned out like you hope, but uh, but it always, you know, made it exciting. You photographed a lot of World Series. How special was it to be around the San Francisco Giants when they were able to win three of them? Oh, just 
absolutely incredible. I mean, you know, when they when they finally won in Arlington in 2010, it was just it was hard to believe, and it was so weird because it happened there. And um, I was working for Major League Baseball, so I'm working with a crew from New York, and you know, you're on the road, and you're in Arlington, and they win, and you have still have work to do after the games, and then you go back to your hotel, and you know, you're by yourself, still doing work in, on your laptop in your room, and and uh, you know, I was there, but I felt like I missed the celebration <laughs> because then I, and then I fly home the next day, and 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 it's uh, it's uh, but you feel like the celebration was here, even though the game was there. You know, it was um, um, it was uh, it, it was crazy, and then the fact that they won three of them, and, and each one was a you know, clinched on the road, which. Uh, you know, you're not going to complain, but but it's it's a bummer that none of them were clinched at home. But just um, but there's nothing like the silence of the home crowd when when yeah you know, the when visiting the team road, celebrates yeah. mm-hmm. on the field. It's just crazy. <laughs> um, yeah, it's something. It's something. And it always feels like it, it can't be real when when you know a team you've rooted for your whole life wins, and then you know I'm in the I'm in the clubhouse shooting the champagne and all that stuff, and there's the trophy, and it's a, uh, it's definitely, definitely, uh, uh, you know, quite a, a bizarre, amazing experience uh, to, to soak in. It's probably really hard to single out one photograph, but do you have a favorite photograph that you've taken? It's not. It's uh, <laughs> you know, there's 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 all kinds of different ones for different reasons. Um, um, it's 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 really hard hard to say it's uh um gosh i mean i have some some stuff from the from the 80s that i love you know when i got to photograph will clark and and those guys um i love shooting him um you know there's you know bonds was amazing to photograph because mm-hmm. he was so photogenic and did so many amazing things and 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 Tim Lincecum, you can never go wrong with him. Uh, some pictures only look good from one angle. He was a guy that you could shoot from every single angle because the way he moved his body, uh-huh. he looked good from everywhere. <laughs> couldn't take a bad picture of Tim Lincecum. Um, <laughs> I miss that guy. Oh, my God. Yeah, he <laughs> – and then him in the dugout with the hair, the long hair, whatever hair he had, like if you, you, know, if, if you shot from the third base well – at the Giants ballpark, you're basically at the end of the dugout, so you're you can see into the dugout, and you're always shooting portraits of him in between innings with his hair and all this stuff, and with his goofy smile. You're always you're always focused on him during a game, even when he's not pitching, when he's in between innings, and and you just you could never have enough pictures of Tim Lincecum because he's just so electric. Yeah, just well. so amazing. <laughs> And hopefully we'll see him at the ballpark again. I mean, I know he'll get another great reception. Uh, well, he was there for the for Bochi, uh, but I yeah, was I was there that day. Yeah. It was crazy. I bet it was. It was. Just, it <laughs> was um, I mean, we heard we heard before the game that he was coming, and it was just a matter of waiting for him to come out of the center field uh, fence. And um, yeah, that was something else. That, <laughs> that was a that was a cool day. And the funny thing is, that's the last time I've been on the field there, you know, because of COVID. Um, which is just freaky. Hoping uh, things keep getting better, though, we'll be on the field again sometime soon, hopefully. They, but, they uh, will. 
They will. You know, it's, uh, um, but yeah, that was the last time I was on the field. Wow. Well, Brad, thanks a lot. Uh, enjoy this baseball season. Hopefully, you know, everybody will be back there. And uh, thanks for taking a trip down memory lane. That's fun. Well, Joe, thanks so much for having me on. It's, it's been a blast. That's photographer Brad Manjin. Want to thank him and Ray Woodson for joining us on this edition of Inside China Basin. George Contos will be back again next week. For now, I'm Joe Castellano. Thanks for listening on the Believe Podcast Network. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.